Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to today's edition of Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, John continues his study in the book of Romans with his five-week series entitled The Heart of the Gospel. And today we'll be asking the question, just how sinful am I? So let's open our Bibles to Romans as we go back to the Bible. The Christian faith has often been accused of being too optimistic and at the same time too pessimistic about the human condition. Those who believe that human beings are simply evolved from random acts of nature find the doctrine that we were created in the image of God to be too high a view of humanity. But that's the fact that the Bible teaches we're unlike any other thing in creation. We are made in the image of God. And there are those who believe, however, that the Christian faith is too negative. Christianity has been criticized for stressing that every single human being has been depraved by sin. This sin talk, say the humanists, leads to an unhealthy guilt complex and a low view of self. You know, I noticed some time ago there were two Canadian men, Atif Raffay and Sebastian Burns, and they were found guilty of murdering Burns' mom and dad, and then also Sebastian Burns' autistic sister, so she wouldn't testify against them. They did it for the life insurance money, and both men showed no remorse or guilt. And at the reading of the verdict, Burns stared down every single member of the jury in an obvious act of contempt and loathing and with an innate sense of his own superiority. And the reason for that is that both young men had been reading philosophical literature about crime. From what they read, both men felt that the committing of a perfect murder was a virtue, and the only wrong that they could do was to make a mistake in committing it, and that mistake would lead to their arrest. But both men were completely without conscience. It's this ability to commit unspeakable crimes without a sense of guilt that has led some psychologists to ask a searching question, what happened to sin? Why aren't we talking about it anymore in our society? Are Raffae and Burns mentally ill, or are they evil? But here's another question. Should the word sin be used only of what I've just described, or should it be used as a term for all of us? The fact is, we live in a society that rarely thinks of themselves as sinners. It's been said that the doctrine of sin keeps people away from the church, and because, at least in the words of many today, we've, we've outgrown this outdated no- notion of sin. At least one popular television preacher has recently said that the worst thing that we can ever call someone is a sinner. Well, is he right? Are we whipping people with our incessant sin language? What does the the Bible say? But before we read our passage in Romans, I wish to say that I believe that honestly facing my sin allows me to experience the greatest freedom imaginable. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I contend that facing our sin squarely can be the most liberating thing that any of us have ever had. It can be like an alcoholic who finally admits that he or she is an alcoholic. Until that admission happens, it will always be a series of lies. You know, I sometimes drink to success. I I sometimes allow myself to get out of hand, but I know I can control this thing. And so the lies continue until the facing of the thing truly happens. A monster lives inside me. I can no more control the monster than I can control the rising of the sun. That confession is a liberating moment indeed. Well, that's how we should speak about our own sin. Romans 3, 9 to 18. Let me read it now. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to practice to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now, please make sure that we understand this basic truth. The passage I've just read is intended to describe not a few, but a universal declaration of all. Let's see if we can do this, the way an alcoholic might admit to being an alcoholic. First, we can, along with every other person, confess this, I'm a sinner. I will include myself in this description. But not only that, Paul goes one step further. He not only says that we're all sinners, he says, and you can see it in verse 9, we are all under sin. You know, later in the book, we're going to see that sin is an alien power that dominates us. Paul will even speak about sin as the law of sin and death. And like any law, it has the power to enforce what it commands. What Paul means to teach here is that sin reigns and dominates the entire human race, so much so that every single person does the thing they detest the most. So sin is so much more than an occasional slip or a mistake, even more than an immoral action. Instead, sin is a takeover of our being by a power greater than ourselves. Let's uh, use an example here. Imagine Canada is taken over by a foreign power. They cancel our laws. They, they instate new laws, laws that are repressive and unjust. The citizens fight against it, but to no avail. The foreign power is greater than our power. We may spend a lifetime fighting, but because of the raw power of the occupying force, the new laws are enforced with vengeance. Finally, most people just stop fighting. What's the use anyway? We have no chance to win, so they bow their heads and submit to sin's dominion. Now, that's the picture here. We're created in the image of God, but an alien occupying power called sin has invaded us, controls us, and punishes all resistance. And that's what Paul has in mind when he speaks of being under sin. But that's only half the story. Paul never teaches that we sin involuntarily. We may be under the dominion of sin, under its authority, but the fact is we have all become collaborators. We sin willfully. We voluntarily give ourselves to the law of sin and so make a bad situation seem not just worse, but impossible. And by the way, this is why people so often feel disgusted with themselves. I mean, they can't understand what's wrong with them. And not only do they feel a power they can't control, but they, if they're honest, they know they're responsible for what they have done because they have freely chosen it. They have chosen to sin. I'm a sinner. And I'm not just a sinner, but I have freely chosen to sin. I'm a collaborator to sin. The consequences are so far-reaching that if we ever thought about it, it would be really quite disturbing. Yes, we are in sin. That's the first issue. But also, I sin willingly and inevitably. And because of that, my world and the world around me is inalterably changed. Sin is pervasive. See, Romans 3.9 is a mouthful and a disturbing one at that. I want to say that this teaching has been called by some theologians the doctrine of complete or total depravity, but that sounds wrong. And the right idea is not that we're as bad as we can be, for that's just simply not true. We could all be worse than we are. I mean, most people don't murder or rape or torture or even abuse others. But what the Bible does teach is this. 
You and I are created in the image of God. We have an intellect, which is a faint representation of the God who reasons. We have a moral compass, an inner sense of right and wrong, which is a representation, a picture of a God who is altogether righteous and just. We are relational, which is a reflection of a God who is personal. So many things that make us uniquely human are a direct reflection of the God who made us. Imagine, if you will, staring into a mirror, a reflection of your image. In a certain sense, not to take the metaphor too far, we reflect the God who made us. Now imagine the mirror is lying on the ground and and someone drops a large stone on top of it. Immediately the image splinters. Does it still reflect your image? Yeah, in fact it does. But now the image is distorted, so much so that the image reflects wrongly at every level. What the doctrine of radical depravity teaches us is that every single part of our humanity has been touched by sin. Our intellect, our conscience, our sense of justice, the way we conduct our relationships, our decision-making process, even our emotions are distorted by the impact of this thing that now lives in us. Nothing is left outside of its grip. And that's the issue. It's not that we could be worse. We all could be. It's that we should be better. And more than that, that we simply don't make the grade before God. We have fallen short of his glory. See, if you can imagine a group of people standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and if you've ever been there, you owe it to yourself to go. Imagine now that the first European explorers who come to it, and they see a chasm that they can't cross, and imagine, in foolishness, they decide to jump. Everyone in the party will jump. So every old man and woman comes to the edge, and some are so feeble, they just tumble to the bottom. Then a world champion long jumper runs up to it, and he tumbles to his death. See, the world long jump record is 8.95 meters, 29 feet and 4 inches. But the gap over the Grand Canyon is over a kilometer, and we're amazed when the world record holder jumps so much further than everyone else, and and surely that's an exceptional person as well. I mean, we watch their arc as they, they go over the edge, but they die too, because whatever they can produce, the best of their efforts fall short of this thing, which is the glory of God. That's a picture of sin. We just don't make the grade, every single one of us. When we come back, we're going to see how that affects us. The effect that sin has on us and the world we live in can be a hard thing to grasp. Ultimately, as Dr. Neufeld has pointed out, most of us feel like we are decent people. Sure, sometimes we stumble, but we really don't do anything that bad. Of course, it all comes back to the fact that we continue to do things that are displeasing to God and don't reflect His image. At the end of the day, we need to make an intentional choice to be the best versions of the people that God has created us to be. I hope you've been enjoying today's program, and I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a special opportunity we have coming up this fall. From October 30th to November 9th, Back to the Bible Canada will be journeying to the Holy Land. Join myself, Dr. John Newfeld, and other special guests for an Israel experience. Walk where Jesus walked and experience the land where the events of the Bible actually took place. To find out more or to register, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's rejoin Dr. Newfeld as we continue our study in the book of Romans. This is how it is between us and God. All of us fall short of God's standards. That's what Romans 3.23 teaches. So it's not that we could be worse. 
It's that our best falls so very short of God. It no longer reflects the image of God or is done to the glory of God because even our best, our very best, is tainted by sin. Everything I do, including my acts of kindness and charity to others, has the this smell of rebellion against God at its edges. I may act kindly, but in so doing, I suppress the glory of God, and I supplant that by seeking glory for myself. But how do I do that? Well, let's get into the details. Romans 3 provides us with a description of my sinfulness. Verses 10 through 18 contain a 13-count indictment against every single person. At points, you may find yourself objecting and saying, but wait a minute, that's not true of me. But let's hear the charges out. Let's see if it actually fits. We can divide this list into four categories. The first is a general description of my character. Remember verses 10 to 12? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This section is taken from Psalm 14, 1 to 3, and that psalm begins with these words. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. You know, at first glance, you might say, Wait a minute, Paul, this psalm speaks of the atheist that's doing evil things. Not everyone, but I think Paul would reply in this way. Well, that's exactly my point. In practice, we've all behaved like there is no God. Remember, we suppress the knowledge of God. And Paul then says, no one seeks God. I mean, look at this earth. We might say, how can that be? People are incurably religious. But notice that right before saying no one seeks God, he says, no one understands. I'm going to try to give you an example of that. Because I live close to the ocean, I love on my days off to take a book and read at a coffee shop on the beach. But occasionally, I'll leave my book and then take a long walk and simply enjoy the salt air. I remember one day seeing a large seagull, and it was a sorrowful sight. It got one of these plastic six-pack pop or beer holders stuck around its beak and neck. And at places, it had begun to bleed and to fester. And for some reason, I just felt I wanted to help that bird get that stuff off. For if it was left there, it would surely die. So I tried to convince that bird to let me get close to it. And for a while, I thought it would. But that bird simply misunderstood my intentions. And so it would not let me unwrap the cords of death from around its neck. Now, I'm sure that in the end, that bird died a miserable death because it didn't understand. Now, Every illustration falls short at a number of levels. I mean, the situation between God and us is really quite different at a number of levels from the illustration that I've just given. But think of it this way. God says he's righteous and we're sinners, and indeed we're hopelessly sinful and incapable of saving ourselves, and that our sin is virtually killing us. And we say, you know, I find that condemning. I mean, give me a different God. I'd rather run from him than to allow him to heal us. And that's the situation between us and God. So why then have we become worthless through this? Now, that word for useless or worthless comes from a word that is used to describe milk when it's turned sour or rancid. It means that the milk is no longer good for that for which it was intended. It's the same with us. We're now incapable of living for that for which we have been intended. We don't live for his glory anymore. I mean, why do you think that most of us spend our lifetime feeling like we're doing something for which we were not intended? I mean, why do we fantasize that we'd really like to be doing something else? 
couple of years ago, the bumper stickers that were popular were the ones that said, I'd rather be sailing or snowboarding or camping or fishing or something like that, something other than what we're presently doing. And if we were sailing or fishing or golfing for a long time, what would we say then? We'd probably say, I'd rather be working a good job that gives me meaning. Why? Because we feel out of sorts. Like, this is not what we're made for. We feel we're worthless in the sense that we're not doing the thing for which we were made. And therefore, I I can't say I'm doing good. Instead, I find nothing good inside me. I mean, that's the general description of my character. Now Paul becomes specific. He takes it to a description of my speech. In verses 13 to 14, Paul mentions the use of our throat, our tongues, our lips, and our mouth. Here now Paul becomes specific. I mean, notice the metaphors that are there. Throats are open graves. You know what an open grave is for? It's there to receive a body. Closed graves are already occupied, but open ones are ready to receive death. The next reference moves to from the throat to the tongue. The tongue deceives. That comes from the same root as the word we use to bait a hook. Uh, We've all done that. You know, we've gone fishing and you've taken a hook which was intended to snare a fish and drag it to its death. And we cover that hook with a worm or a piece of bacon or make it look like a fly or, or something that's edible to the fish. It's this kind of deadly deception which will cost the fish's life. Our tongues, Paul says, have killed many. And then Paul moves from the throat to the tongue to the, to the lips. And speaking of the lips, he says it's like a deadly snake, a snake whose poison sac is concealed just underneath the lips so that when it, it bites, it injects death. And then Paul moves to the entire mouth. And here's the point. How often have our mouths been used to destroy? I mean, that's just one example of how pervasive the sin that keeps bubbling out of us really is. And then Paul moves from the tongue to a description of our behavior. Verses 15 to 17 uh, moves from the use of the mouth to the use of the feet. The feet, Paul says, are swift to shed blood. And then he speaks of the paths that we walk, paths of ruin and misery. And there is, he says, the only path we've not walked is the way of peace. In essence, what Paul has done is moved from our talk to our actions. Um, Let me explain why behavior comes always after speech. I had a conversation with a police officer who told me that when criminal begins to threaten him, I mean, it's not far, he says, that they immediately move to action. So the minute he says, I hear a threat, I immediately slap the handcuffs on him. Why? Because first comes talk and then comes action. For many of us, the lack of action is only the lack of opportunity or the right circumstances. And what's the result? I must confess, I easily destroy others to prove my own worth. Now, Paul brings this thing to a climax. A description of my relationship with God is this. I'm arrogant towards God. Verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And to sum it up, you know, remember we began by speaking about Sebastian Burns, who after murdering his parents, stared down the jurors in arrogance. And Paul contends, that's the way we try to stare down God. In arrogance, we sin, we say willingly and inevitably, we're against you, O God. In fact, we show our contempt for God. We, the crown of his creation, show contempt for our fellow human beings and don't even consider the response of God. So then none of us can escape this. 
Now, why is Paul belaboring this concept of sin? You might be wondering that. And the answer is that Paul can't talk to us about the cross until we actually believe we are dying of a cancer called sin. This sin touches everything, our worship, our sexuality, our minds, our seeking after God, the way we use language, the actions and the decisions we make. You want a layman's definition of sin? Here it is. Nothing works the way it should work. Everything leads to death. Everything's broken. We desperately need a savior. See, that's why at this point in the study of Romans, we should be ready to say, give me some good news. I'm ready for it. Thank God he's provided good news because if the story of God's work among us ended simply by God declaring what we look like in his presence, we'd have every reason to be filled with despair. But there's hope coming. There's a cross that God has prepared for those who are dying and languishing in sin. There is good news. The gospel is the best thing we've ever heard. Thanks, John, for another great message. Uh, It's been a sobering one as we consider the whole issue of sin again in our lives. And we've been spending a lot of time there. So I might ask you the question, why is it so important? Why have you committed so much time to talking about the issue of sin? Yes, I, I know that it's been a long time, Ben. I, I'm frankly quite a, kind of tired of talking about sin. Um, and uh, however, it's there in the text. And we might ask ourselves, you know, why does Paul belabor the point? And he seems to belabor the point. I mean, it just feels that way to me. And there are times just studying this and going through it. I, I just feel the oppressiveness of this thing. And, uh, you know, there are times you go to God and say, God, why have you made such a big deal of this? And I've come to this conclusion that unless sin can seem like the blackest thing in the world, it just will never seem like the cross is so valuable. And uh, I, I think that some of us have a difficulty by not seeing what Christ did on the cross because we've never taken the time to examine sin and just kind of root at, its de- at all of its details in our lives and be deeply, deeply disturbed by what we see. Now, we're moving on a little bit tomorrow, are we? Maybe to talk about the cross? Yeah, we sure are. Uh, I have one more thing to share about uh, the unique thing that God has done in Israel's history, Uh, but it's going to move very quickly now to the glory of the cross. And believe me, the mood will get beautiful and light, and uh, you will be glad we went through all of this stuff. So uh, hang in there. That's what I want to say. Thanks, John, and we do look forward to the days ahead as we look towards the cross and all the hope that's given in that. Uh, So join us again, would you, uh, with Dr. John Neufeld as we continue Back to the Bible. I hope you've been challenged by today's message. And that the program will help you better understand the reality of sin, but also the impact it has on everyone and everything around us. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will be talking about the depth and richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So join us on tomorrow's edition of Back to the Bible Canada. For the past six weeks, we've been enjoying and we've been challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John Neufeld. The response of listeners across Canada has been so encouraging, and we want to thank all of those who have sent emails and handwritten notes to warmly welcome him. In response, Dr. Neufeld would like to give all of you, our listeners, a very special gift during the month of February. Call today and you'll receive as your gift 
Dr. Neufeld's recent series on the book of Philemon called An Alternative Lifestyle. We can only offer this gift through the end of February, so be sure to give us a call before then. If you'd like your own copy of this great series or think it would be an encouragement to someone else you might know, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.